Good morning. Thank you, worship team, for leading us in worship this morning. It's a lot better to be in front of you all here than in front of you all up there on a screen. I don't know if you've ever uh, recorded yourself before and then had to go back and watch it and then, uh, and then sent it to 300 people. Um, it's pretty terrible. So anyway, I'd much rather be up here. Um, <clears throat> anyway, my name is Josh. I get to open God's word with you this morning. Go ahead and open with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Over the last couple of weeks, we've walked through a series of messages called Dear Church about who the Lord is calling us to be as Lakeview. There were a few big takeaways, things that we feel like the Lord is, is calling us to as a church. And the first one was a reminder that nothing has changed, right? Like as Lakeview Church, nothing about our mission has changed. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ gave to the church a great commission, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm going to be with you through every single bit of it till the end of the age. That is still our charge as a church. Nothing has changed, and that's who we want to be, and that's what we want to do as Lakeview Church. The second takeaway from that series is that moving forward, we're going to organize ourselves, uh, our church family, in relational context rather than by events, programs, or departments. Our focus is going to be on creating relational environments where the people of God can gather together with the Spirit of God there among us, Jesus present there with us, and interact and engage with each other in a variety of different ways. It's not going to be about how many people can we filter into this specific program. It's going to be how can we create those spaces where God can work in the hearts of his people. And then finally, we want to uh, refocus our leadership. We want to set up the overseers of Lakeview Church to carry out the, the mission that is most essential, most critical, most important, the primary job of an overseer in Scripture. We want to do that thing, and that is to shepherd the flock of God that has been bought by the blood of Jesus and entrusted to our care. We don't want to get together and talk for six hours about the roof or for the, about the parking lot. That one took a while, Andy. Uh, talking about the parking lot. It looks great, but boy, it took a long time and a lot of talking. But our primary goal and job as overseers is not to talk about the parking lot, is not to talk about the roof. That stuff needs to get done. Our primary job is to care for you because you are important. You've been bought by the blood of Jesus, joined together here at Lakeview Church, and we are entrusted to care for you. That means to pray for you. That means to celebrate with you. That means to weep with you. It means to rejoice with you as your families go through different things. It means to feed and nourish you with the word of God. So that's what we want to do. We don't want to waste time with the other things. So that's the direction that we feel the Lord has given to us as a local church. And as we seek to follow Jesus faithfully and walk in what the Lord is calling us to do, um, not only as a church but also as individuals, one thing has become glaringly obvious for us, and that is, as we seek to follow Jesus together, we can't do this alone. Like, there's no way that we as Lakeview Church can become everything that God wants us to be, everything he's calling us to do, without each other. 
We can't do this if we're just a bunch of Lone Ranger Christians trying to make it through this life on our own. We need to relate to each other in ways that will help us flourish and grow into what God wants us to be. Following Jesus is a group project. Anybody do group projects in school? Yeah. So what typically happened in school, right? Three or four people get put together in a group. One person, oh, there, I've got people giving me the, the one, the number one. I was going to say giving me the, the anyway. Um, <laughs> that was almost a slip there. All right. People were holding up the number one. One person does all the work, right? One person does all the work. The other three or four, what do they do? They take the credit for doing said work. I'll admit when I was in high school, I was part of the three or four, enjoying the work of my good friend, Jerry Bradley. I always made sure that I was in Jerry's group. Why? Because Jerry would do all the work and he loved it. So just made sure I was in his group. That's not how following Jesus works though. It's a group project and nobody gets to coast. Right, like we don't get to say, well, it's a group project, but really the staff or the elders or the volunteers or the leaders, like this group of people, they're the ones entrusted with the work. The rest of us, we're just gonna, we're just gonna take the credit for it. We're just gonna be along for the ride. Well, that's not how this group project works. We need you. In fact, what we're gonna see today, God has put this body together just like he wants it to be because we need you. And if you're not contributing what he has given you to contribute to the body, we are worse off without you contributing what he has given. I'm getting ahead of myself, though. <clears throat> Toward that end, follow, so following Jesus requires that we all sort of grab an oar, row in the same direction. And Towards that end, we're starting a new sermon series today where we're asking the question, how do we follow the Jesus? How do we follow Jesus together? How do we do this group project right? The answer to that question is found in the one another's of the New Testament. Everywhere the words one another appear, this Greek word alelon, which interestingly enough sounds like all alone. I can't do this all alone. Be one way. Anyway, moving on. So one another's in the New Testament. There are 59 of them. We're going to look at a handful of them. We sort of lumped a bunch of them together into categories. Scripture calls us to love one another, to honor one another, to live in harmony with one another, to bear with one another, which necessarily means some of you are annoying. Um, to encourage one another, you know who you are, uh, to encourage one another, serve one another, and pray for one another. And as we embody these one another's together, we not only grow in our walk with the Lord, but we help each other to grow in their walk with the Lord as we make our contribution to the body together. It's a group project. Each week, we're actually going to have two sermons during this series. So, you're pretty much going to be here until the Super Bowl starts tonight. Uh, oh, I forgot that, uh, that announcement, didn't I? Did I forget the announcement? Come back tonight, 5 o'clock, Super Bowl party. Remove the, oh, look at that. They are on it with the slides. Super Bowl party. Remove the high places, kickoff, tailgate party, 5 p.m. in the sanctuary. We're going to eat together. We've got lots of brats and hot dogs and, and uh, chips, so if you're bringing some food, please do. Bring something else. Don't bring that stuff. Uh, yeah, and we'll get together, practice a growth group together as... Um, Who's even in this? Anybody that matters? No, okay, that's all right. So anyway, we have two sermons each week. 
during this sermon series. Um, the first sermon is going to be the longer of the two. It's going to focus on a one another from the New Testament. The second is going to focus on a spiritual practice that helps us in this group project together, helps us to follow Jesus faithfully with one another. Today, we're going to lay what I think is the foundation for all of the other one another's that come after this, right? Much like building a building, if we don't get the foundation right, we're going to have serious problems down the road if we don't get this. As I prepared for today, I, <clears throat> I couldn't help but think back to uh, my and my wife's first time buying a home. Right after we had our first child, we were in a little, it was a two-bedroom apartment, but it was, it was pretty tiny and diaper boxes stacked up high uh, along the walls. And it was like, wow, we've got we've to get out of here. So we started looking for a home, finally found a home that was right for us, which means cheap. And uh, we, we it, it wasn't pleasing to the eye, sorry, Tiffany, but I convinced her that it had good bones. And uh, so we uh, moved forward, made an offer on the house. It came time to inspect it. We had a friend of ours who was a home inspector. So he went out and he starts looking at it. And in the process of looking at the house, he realizes a few things. There's a crack in the foundation that he can see from the side. Now, in the south, everything's built on top of the ground on a concrete slab. We don't have all the cool basements and stuff that we have up here. So uh, anyway, so he noticed a crack. Then he noticed the, <clears throat> the uh, facade on the outside was beginning to crumble a little bit. And he went inside and he noticed where the, the walls met the ceiling in some places there was a crack there. And he noticed that the front door didn't close quite right and the back door didn't close quite right. And he said, I think you might have some foundation issues. Now, may not sound like a huge deal here in Wisconsin, but in Louisiana, the entire state is a swamp, right? Like the whole thing, swamp, alligators everywhere. It's like swamp people that you've seen on TV, like literally, not, maybe not quite that bad. But, but yeah, the, the ground is very, very soft. It's very, very common to have uh, a house that has settling issues or foundation issues, and it can get really expensive really, really quickly because what can happen if they don't come in and put these pilings underneath your home when you have foundation issues, it just, it just keeps going, right? Like it just keeps settling. You have more and more and more problems. Looking at the one another's in the New Testament, <clears throat> can be kind of like this, kind of like this home inspection. As we start these series, it's vitally important that we get the foundation right. The one and others, as we study them, if we're honest, they're going to show some red flags, right? They're going to show areas where maybe we don't relate to one another quite like we should. Maybe we don't love one another quite like we should. Maybe we don't bear with one another quite like we should. Maybe we don't honor others in our body quite like we, we should. Maybe we, we're not very good at forgiving one another. Whatever the case may be, they're going to highlight areas that we really need to do some work if we're going to walk with Jesus for the glory of God and the common good. And so as we see these things, there would be a temptation to make the repair, right? Like we uh, <clears throat> love one another, forgive one another. So all of a sudden we start approaching the one another's like these boxes to be checked off. But what would have happened if Tiffany and I had moved into this house but the foundation kept settling and we just went in and we plastered over the cracks in the walls and we fixed the facade on the outside and you know, made sure the doors were closing, what would happen in six months? The house would keep settling and those repairs that we did would be in vain. We would be useless. We would have wasted our time and wasted our money. The same thing can happen as we're talking about the one another's. If we don't address the foundation first, we can approach the one another's as a checklist. 
and never throughout this whole process actually start to feel towards one another like we should feel towards one another. Never come to grips with the foundational truth that we need to support the one another's, to, to buttress the one another's. And you say, well, okay, so what is the foundation? Here's the foundation that we're going to be talking about. should be up there we go. Here's the foundation. In Christ, we are one body and individually members of one another. Right? In, in Christ, we, the people all around you, as a collective, we are, we are one body and individually members of one another. If we don't get this foundation right, then all the love one another and forgive one another and encourage one another, that just devolves and settles into secular sentimentalism wrapped up in Christian language. That's not what we want. It's not what we want to do. We want to actually live in and live out of the one another's as we relate to each other. So it's important that we get this foundation right. We see this in Romans chapter 12. I asked you to turn there earlier. If you're not there, go ahead and get there. Romans chapter 12. Read with me beginning in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to you, or I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Sorry. In verse 1 here in chapter 12, Paul wraps up all of the deep theology that has come before in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans where he he explains the, the depravity of man, where he explains justification by faith alone in Christ alone where he explains new life in the Spirit. And he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So so based on the mercies of God that you have seen laid out to you over the last 11 chapters, based on all of that, present yourselves as a living sacrifice. In other words, because of the gospel, because of the mercy of God that has been made known to you, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Present your whole self, your entire life to God as an act of worship. And one of the ways that this plays out is found in verse 3, thinking of ourselves with sober judgment. That is not being arrogant, not being prideful, not thinking of ourselves as more important than the brothers and sisters that God has placed right here around us, not putting our needs and our preferences before them. And Paul anchors all of this in verses four and five. I'm gonna read it again. For as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same functions. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So let's take these verses and that big idea that I put up on the screen at the beginning of the, of the sermon and break that into two points for, for today. <clears throat> Point number one, in Christ we are one body. 
Paul uses an illustration that we are familiar with. Here's a little test. Who in here has a body? Boy, some of you are not doing well on the quiz today. We all have a body, right? Like this is something that we're familiar with. And, and our bodies are made up of multiple parts, parts that do different things. Like my eyes see and my ears hear and my hands can grab stuff and my feet keep me somewhat balanced up here, right? Like they all have different jobs. There's a multitude of parts. They all do different things. If I was to walk up to you and stomp on your foot, let's say, you're not going to say, eh, it's just a foot. What are you going to say? Ow, that's my, that's my foot. You stepped on my foot. Why, why, would you, why would you do that? Because there's a unity there, right? Like even though it's, it's just your foot, even though it's just your foot, well, it's you, your foot is no less you than your head is you or your heart is you or your lungs are, are you. That is, that is you. Even though it's only a part of you, that is definitely you. And if you disagree, we'll try it after the service. Right? Come by and give it a shot. Paul says the church is like that. Right? Lots of parts, one body in unity. Notice in this passage... We're not one body because we all come to the same social gathering on Sunday mornings. We're not one body because we all write a check and put it towards the same cause when we drop it in the offering plate. We're not one body because we went through the membership class and signed the church covenant and got interviewed by a couple of elders so that they could hear our testimony. How do we become one body? How are we one body? Verse 5, so we, though many, are one body in Christ. In Christ. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that those are the most, the two most significant, most descriptive, most meaningful, and most profound words in the entire Bible. I don't think that's a stretch. So what does it mean? Well, it means that all who hear the call to follow Christ and who turn away from sin and who turn to Jesus by faith, latch on to him by faith, in that very moment they are swallowed up into Jesus. They are connected to him, joined inseparably to him, made to be a part of him. And when that happens, our sins are forgiven. Jesus' perfect righteousness is now counted as ours and our sin is dealt with once and for all. The animosity that once existed between us and God is in an instant done away with. God now looks at us not as rebellious sinners, but as beloved sons, fellow heirs with Christ. We're given the Holy Spirit to empower us for mission and to empower us for holy living and to keep us for the last day. In that moment, we become part of the body of Christ. For those who are in Christ, that becomes the primary descriptor of your identity. And I, want, I want to double down on that real quick. Like, if you are in Christ, that is the most important thing about you. Not your job, not your spot in your family not your political affiliation, not your hobbies that you enjoy, 
There may be 10 million ways that we as believers distinguish ourselves from one another and the things that we like to do and the labels that we give to ourselves. All of those things are subservient and secondary to those two words, in Christ, if indeed you are in him. This is the most important thing about us. And in Christ, we are one body. Not only are we one body in Christ, but in Christ, we are individually members of one another. Right? Like when we are in Christ, we are not just joined to Christ, we are joined to one another. There is a connection between us that was created by God Himself. And just like with your biological family, you don't get to choose your relatives, they're just there. 1 Corinthians 12, 18, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. Real quick, look at the people around you. God put those people there. God put those people in your fellowship. You are bound to them in Christ if they are in Christ. And they are bound to you. And you don't get a say in it. You can look at them and say, you're stuck with me. Nothing you can do about it. You might say, but I don't really like these people. I don't see things the way they do. I don't agree with them politically. I don't agree with them on (gasps) COVID stuff, mask, no mask, vaccine, no vaccine. Boy, we love to fight about that silly stuff. In Christ or not in Christ? None of that stuff matters when we're in Christ. God doesn't care about your preferences. Maybe he does about some things, but not when it comes to who's in the body. He's not gonna be like, well, can I pick on you, Shad? Well, Shad doesn't like Jesse, so we're gonna send Jesse on down the street to first who's or what's. No, God puts people where he wants them. And if you don't like it, that's up to you to change your mind about it. Not up to God to change it around. Anyway, what's that? Oh, sorry, I used a real-life example. No, I'm kidding. Uh, (laughs) uh, The reality is, though, Shad, if you are brothers in Christ, you are bound by God. There it is. Just fixed it. You're welcome, guys. Each of the members of the body are arranged at God's pleasure. Our opinions don't really matter. And this truth carries with it two really significant implications for us this morning. Without these implications, the rest of the one another's really don't matter. They settle, like I said earlier, into sentimentalism. They're just, oh, it's nice to love each other. It's nice to forgive each other. But really, at the end of the day, they don't matter. Unless these two implications are true, and I think they are. Here's the first one. Because we are members of one another, we are dependent on one another. A few things are valued in our culture quite like independence. We want to be self-made. We want to be self-sufficient. Dependence is for those who are weak. Dependence is for those who don't have it all together. We don't want to depend on anyone. But the reality is, in the body of Christ, we are dependent on one another by God's design. 
We're not dependent on one another as like a secondary, like, well, this person really should get it together, but because they can't, well, at least the church is there to like help them out a little bit. No, the church is dependent on one another by God's design. We see this as Paul describes spiritual gifting in 1 Corinthians 12. He picks up the same imagery, one body, many members. And here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the, body, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Hold on to that one. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. We can no more figure that we don't need each other than your hand can tell your feet it, it doesn't need them. Just like with our physical bodies, each member of the body is dependent on one another. Why? Why did God set it up that way? Why did, why did he make it like this? It'd be a lot easier if we could just be self-sufficient. We could just import those American values right here into our religion. Why did God do this? Well, so that there would be no division. So that we couldn't get trapped by the really foolish thought that we can live the Christian life independently. God made the body to work in this way so that we might have the same care for one another. Like Paul says in verse 25, or so that we might not think too highly of ourselves, like Paul said in Romans 12, 3. Because we are members of one another, we need each other. Like your stomach needs your mouth and your mouth needs your stomach. We need each other. We depend on each other. Here's the second implication. Because we are members of one another, you're going to like this one even less. Because we're members of one another, we have obligations to one another. Perhaps the only thing that we like less than being dependent on other people is having obligations to other people, having to treat other people a certain way, having to provide someone with a certain level of support, having to be there for somebody else. But in the body of Christ, that's exactly how the Lord has set things up. We're dependent on one another and we have obligations toward one another. And if this is true, that we are dependent on one another <clears throat> by God's design, that, he, that is, he intends for certain needs that we have to be met by others within the body, then we are necessary, necessarily obligated to meet those needs. Like if God made me to need Jesse, God made Jesse to meet that need. And if God made Jesse to need me, God made me to meet that need that Jesse has. Now multiply that by 300 different people. God made us to need each other, and God made us to meet the needs of one another. That's how he's designed his body. Speaking in the context of spiritual gifts, Paul says this, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That is, the Spirit is given to individuals and manifests himself in individuals so that it may benefit the body as a whole. And I don't think it's a stretch to take this principle and expand it to include 
more than just spiritual gifts like we typically think of them. As a matter of fact, look down with me. Right after Paul talks about being one body in Christ and individually members of one another in Romans 12, he launches into this whole string of obligations. Romans 12, 9, let love be genuine. How often is our love genuine? How often is it forced? Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. You say, well, I don't really like my brother. That's not the point. The point is we're supposed to love each other like we're family. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. That means more than just giving some money so that somebody can meet that financial need. It means being there emotionally for other people. It means being there physically for other people when they need help. It means being available to other people. And Paul goes on to say, and seek to show hospitality. Be eager for it. Be looking for it. Seek to show it. Not begrudgingly, well, somebody needs somewhere to go, so I guess I'll be the one who opens up my home. No, seek to show hospitality. Go out of your way to show hospitality. Because in Christ we are one body and individually members of one another, we are dependent on each other and we have obligations toward one another. What more backwards thing could we find? Right? Like what, what could offend our sensibilities as 21st century modern American Christians than this? Like this, we don't like depending on people and we don't like being obligated to people. And Jesus says, Congratulations, you're both in my body, how I put you here. God has created this body to both meet the needs of all the members and to need all the members. This is a foundation. If we will embrace this reality, this is something that we can build on over the next several weeks as we look at the one another's. When we frame the conversation in this context, we need each other, we're obligated to each other, we're all one in the body of Christ, we're all joined to each other in the body of Christ. Now all of a sudden, love one another is not a, just a neat little suggestion in Scripture. Now all of a sudden, encourage one another isn't, isn't a, well, go help them, help them cheer up, right? It puts everything into its proper place. It doesn't allow all of those to descend into Christian sentimentalism. It frees us to unconditionally love like Jesus loves. It frees us to honor one another radically because he has restored our dignity by joining us to Christ. No matter who you are, no matter where you came from, he has joined you to Christ and placed you into his body. And so you, are, you, are, you have dignity and worth and value. It frees us to bear with one another as he has been patient with us. What better motivator to be patient with your brother and sister in Christ than to set your mind on the fact that God is patient with you every second of every day. This frees us to pray for one another fervently because we desperately want this body to grow into all that God has for us. It frees us to serve one another sacrificially because we remember that Christ has first served us sacrificially. So let's commit ourselves here over the next seven, eight weeks, including this one. Let's commit ourselves to this foundation as we follow Jesus together for the glory of God and the common good. Thanks, Josh. So there's two sermons every week, so uh, this one's going to be really short. <laughs> One of the most common things that uh, I hear when I talk to people um, is 
I don't have to go to church to follow Jesus, right? Why don't you come to church more often? I miss seeing you. What? I don't have to go to church to follow Jesus. Ah, you know. Actually, you do. Uh, the church is the body of Christ. And Paul says over and over and over times that Christ is the head of his body, the church. If you are not living actively engaged as a member of the body of Christ, you're not living with Christ as your head. You're like an arm, disconnected, laying off on the side of the road. That arm doesn't have a head. If you want to live with Christ as your head, you must live in the body of Christ. You must be a member in Christ of his body, just like Josh has been talking about. So one of the things that I want to talk about this morning is an expression of how we do that. One of the most ancient ways that Christians have come together and been uh, belonged to one another, been members of one another, is through sharing meals together. And uh, Christianity has a meal that's called the Lord's Supper or Communion or the Eucharist, depending on your background. Um, and this is a meal that we come together and we remember the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in sharing that meal together, we are bonded together once again as members of one another. And so um, before we jump into communion, I want to share with you a, a story that Jesus told from Luke chapter 14. And to set the context of this, Jesus is having a meal with uh, some people in, uh, in Israel and hearing this, They've been talking, and, and then somebody responds to something Jesus had said. Verse 15, it says, Hearing this, a man sitting at the table with Jesus exclaimed, What a blessing it will be to attend a banquet in the kingdom of God. And Jesus replied with this story. A man prepared a feast and sent out many invitations. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servant to tell the guests, Come, the banquet is ready. But they all began to make excuses. One said, I have just bought a field and must inspect it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five pairs of oxen and I want to try them out. Please excuse me. Another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant returned and told his master what they had said. His master was furious and said, go quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. After the servant had done this, he reported there is still room for more. So his master said, go out into the country lanes and behind the hedges and urge anyone you find to come so that the house will be full. For none of those I first invited will get even the smallest taste of my banquet. Communion is a meal that looks back at the death and resurrection of Christ and it also is a meal that looks ahead to the great banquet in the kingdom of God. And there are two things that I want to pull out of this passage really quickly for you this morning. The first is this. The people who are at the banquet are the people who responded to the invitation. They're not sitting at the banquet because they're the honored guests. They're not sitting at the banquet because of their social status. They're not sitting at the banquet because they brought something to the table to share. No, they're sitting there because they are the ones who responded to the invitation. If you want to have a place in God's household, a room in God's house, a seat at God's table, if you want to be part of God's family, part of the body of Christ, you don't get there because you're generally speaking pretty much a good person and yeah, you may party a little bit in your late teens, early 20s, but you've kind of grown out of that and you've done a lot of good things since then and when you stand before God someday, generally your life's good and he's going to let you in. That's not how it works. 
You don't have a seat at God's table because of all the things that you've accomplished in life. You don't have a a room in God's house because of your status, your social status, or how many followers you have, or, or the good things that you've done. The only way to have a seat at God's banquet is to respond to the invitation. That's it. You're not there because you're an honored guest. It's about honoring the host. The people who were at this banquet were the ones who responded to the invitation. So the question that I have this morning is, have you responded to the invitation? God sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus came and died in your place and mine so that he could extend his resurrected life to us and restore our fellowship with God. And he he offers this invitation to everyone who would accept it. You can be born again into the household of God. If you'll turn from your sin and accept and surrender your life to Jesus Christ, you'll be filled with his Holy Spirit and born again into his family. Have you accepted the invitation? The only people who will be in the kingdom of God are the people who've accepted the invitation. It has nothing to do with how much you've accomplished or how good you think you are or aren't. It is all about have you accepted that invitation in Christ. The second thing I want to point out from this story is look at the people who were at the banquet. The poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Just like Josh was preaching, every single one of those people is dependent on someone else in some capacity. The point is there are no self-sufficient people at the table of God. There are no self-sufficient people at the banquet in the kingdom of God. Every single person who's there is dependent on someone else. When Christians read parables like these, we oftentimes begin to relate to one or other characters in the story. And we say, well, where do I find myself in this story? And most of the time, we're humble enough to know, you know, the master of the banquet, well, he's, he represents God, and I'm not God, so I can, you know, we're humble enough to acknowledge, I'm not God, I'm not the master of the banquet. But what we often do is we look at the story like this, and we say, well, I'm the, I'm the servant. The master tells the servant, go out and find the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame, and bring them into my house. And we say, oh, that's what God's calling me to do. I'm his servant. He's sending me out to go to the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Social justice in the name of Jesus. I'm going to share the gospel with them and meet their needs and bring them into the banquet. Wow, that's a cause that I can get behind. But that's actually the wrong way to read the story. The servant in the story isn't us. The servant in the story is Jesus. You know who we are? The poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. That's who we are in the story. And oh, I don't want to be that. Unless that's who you are, you don't have a place at the table of God. God sent his son, the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, to come and rescue the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame and bring us into the household and the banquet of God so that we could share in the feast and in the celebration and in the joy of being born again into God's family. Not because we deserve it, but because of his grace and his mercy. Have you accepted the invitation and do you recognize, can you look in the mirror and say, I don't bring anything to the table. In fact, I need everybody else here and they need me because we're all poor and crippled and blind and lame 
And without one another, we can't really do much. Those are the two questions. We're going to celebrate communion, which is a way that uh, Christians have come together for 2,000 plus years. Uh, I'm going to invite the worship team back up so we can sing afterward. As they're coming forward and before we uh, partake of these elements, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you sent your servant, your son, (laughs) to be the servant that would rescue all of us out of the crippling blindness of sin that so wreaks havoc on our souls that we can't see, we can't move, we're stuck. And without you, Lord Jesus, we would have nothing and we would be nothing. But you came for us and you brought us into that banquet. You extended that invitation. Come unto me all who are weary and carrying a heavy burden and I will give you rest. And Lord, I pray that we would accept that invitation. If there's anyone here this morning who hasn't accepted that invitation, I pray that through your Holy Spirit you would draw their heart, you would call them, and that they would say, yes, I will take that invitation, I will turn from my sin, I will give my life to Jesus, and I will be born again into his household. I'll have a room in his house. I'll have a seat at his table. Lord, I pray that you would also speak to our hearts about those areas in our lives where we don't want to be dependent on one another, where we forget that we're the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. God, would you just convict us of the pride that so infests us? We confess that sin to you, Lord, and we thank you for your mercy and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Christians have come together and shared this in the the early church. They did communion as a big potluck meal. They called it a love feast, an agape feast. Um, So this isn't a big old meal, but we're having one tonight. So come back out and we'll have a big potluck uh, meal tonight. But if you would take the the wafer which uh, signifies the body of Christ that was broken for you on the cross, and I wonder if you just hold that up and just crack it. Hear the sound of that cracking, that breaking bread. That is the body of Christ that was broken for you. Let us eat and remember. This is non-alcoholic juice. If you have an issue with alcohol, you don't have to bypass communion here. It's just grape juice. But this grape juice uh, symbolizes the blood that Jesus Christ poured out on the cross for your sin and mine. And as we drink this together, let us remember his sacrifice for us.